and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. You can hear this podcast on Buzzsprout, as well as all the major podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts. You can also watch via YouTube, as well as my website, ronrobinsonstudios.com. In this episode, which is brought to you by Team 71 Mortgage Group, I'm going to be taking, uh, talking about and giving you an update on the status of my documentary series, Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio which you may or may not know, will be a historic look at radio as a medium. From its inception back in 1920 to current day, this documentary tells the story of radio, its history. Also today, I'm going to be sharing with you, as as an adage to that, uh, some of my favorite outtakes uh, from this docuseries that didn't make the final cut. So... But before we get to the outtakes, uh, like I said, the update uh, on the status of Radio Days, the docuseries. From from 2014 to late last year, I interviewed over 30 radio personalities and historians to help radios to tell radio stories. Some of the names include Ken Calvert, Paul W. Smith, Dick Purton, Doug Podell, Duke Fakur, Fred Jacobs, Dick Kernan, Jill Forsyth, Mike Staff, John O'Leary, Mike Halloran, JoJo Shuddy McGregor, Terry Foster, Chuck Santoni, Jim Davis, Art Regner, many more. Um, right now, as it stands, I'm all but completely finished editing this mammoth labor of love, and uh, I'm currently looking for distributors to help me find a network or a streaming service that uh, will show... Um, this docuseries so everyone can finally be able to see this five-part docuseries. It is five parts. I, I also want to add that in uh, in addition to the five-part docuseries, I also edited a shorter, a shorter movie version of this documentary that I hope to one day very, very soon show on a local movie screen. So stay tuned for that. My last hurdle uh, in, uh, in this production is to raise the money that uh, Getty Images and um, and some of the music services are charging uh, for the licensing uh, of some critical content that I need to tell this story. I have launched a GoFundMe page in hopes of raising some of the necessary funds. If you'd like to help out and donate and become an associate producer of this docuseries, the link to do so is in the description. If you are not able to, my ask, uh, if you see or hear this, is to share it with as many people as possible within your sphere of influ- influence. So thank you, thank you, thank you in advance. Every little bit helps. I really, really appreciate it. Um, now that you've been given an update, um, here's some of my favorite outtakes. I want to talk about some of my favorite outtakes from Radio Days, the docuseries. Um, but before I get to my top 10, um, and I say top 10 loosely because there's so many outtakes that just didn't make the cut, uh, of this docuseries. Before we get to the top 10, I, I have a few honorable mentions. So first up here is, uh, is as far as an honorary mention in the outtakes, is country DJ Jill Forsyth, excuse me, country DJ Jill Forsyth talking about the radio war that took place between W4 and WYCD back in the 90s. Take a listen. That country war was pretty exciting. That um, country war really gave us something to live for and work hard for because we loved beating W4. 
and we thought they were just this old boring country station and that's kind of how the imaging played them out to be and we were this exciting new station playing this great new music with upbeat DJs and I, I was actually hired over there and I was going to do, be doing mornings with Michael J. Fox when the man that was going to hire me all of a sudden got fired. So I was going to make a flip to do mornings and then it didn't work out that way. So then I ended up staying on Young Country and the program director at the time, I had to, had to take a $12,000 pay cut because all the people at W4 were out of a job and I hadn't signed my contract. And I was, it was a really nice contract, but I wanted to do mornings. And so that, I kind of lost out, but who would have known W4 was going to be going off the air then? But while we were both competition, it was really fun. It was fun looking at your show, comparing it to the other station, bigger bonuses for us when there was competition. There's just nothing like having competition in radio. In this next clip, former WRIFPD Mark Pasman talks about the genesis of the Bruiser Band. Remember the Bruiser Band from, from Riff in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s? Check this out. When George would come up with a, uh, a parody tune, the musician would get to go in the studio, you know, produce it up. That was like one of my best radio gigs ever. And then, I don't know who it was that says, well, why don't we get a band and get out there and play, make it a, you know, a promotional arm of the radio station. It's, it's, it, the, the songs are red hot. And we ended up selling, you know, doing a Bruiser Band album. Our opening gig was opening for Mitch Ryder at Pine Knob, Full House, Major Storm. We had some great gigs. And, um, you know, we, we were a, a bunch of ragtag, you know, my first bass player was one of the sales guys because we couldn't find anybody. Our uh, Tommy Dalden uh, from Promotions was on drums. So it was a real um, family thing. And it was also a way to be a part of, you know, this radio juggernaut, but I'm still in a band. I'm still playing my guitar. I'm still, you know, smiling at pretty girls. So it's, it, it was, uh, it was um, a, a very special time uh, promotionally. And for me, it was just, it was, a, it was a gas. In this last honorable mention, we hear from former CKLW jock, Big Jim Edwards, as he talks about the emergence of computers being used at radio stations. Check this out. You know, I put my first digital recorder into a radio station in New Jersey in 1993. I thought, this is just an amazing, how can they do this? Yeah, uh, we had a little floppy disk and a hard drive, and we were able to put a radio station together where we sequenced re records digitally. Well, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of the end for the turntable, and cartridges came about and we played songs off of what looked like eight tracks and and uh, then ultimately we we ditched the eight tracks and the cassettes and the records and and we put things on hard drives and we played them off of computers all right now on to my top 10 favorite outtakes from radio days 101 years of radio at number 10 here is uh well he's a tv star now but he started in radio here's greg russell talking about going on the air for the very first time in his career I believe it was a WJR-FM. Yes, WJR-FM. It was going from an automated station to a live station. So I was there just learning the stuff because they wanted me just to be ready for when they put me on the air. Well, one night I got a call going, Greg, the automation system broke down. We've got to put you on right now or you know, tonight. So I was there at the station and our sales manager came up and he says, why are you looking so nervous? I said, I got to go on tonight. 
I don't know, you know, I'm just kind of freaked. And so we're in the Fisher building. They used to have this bar downstairs called Al Green's. He said, come with me. And so we go down there, he says, what do you like to drink? I said, uh, rum and Coke. He says, okay, this guy Bacardi and Coke and he took whatever he had. So had one, he said, how you feel? I said, feel a little bit better. He said, okay, uh, what time are you on? I said, in an hour. He says, oh, give him a tray of three of those. <laughs> Took upstairs and just kind of, you know, relaxed it. Best show ever. <laughs> but that's how it started, yeah. Just, you know, had a drink, cooled out, and just been having fun ever since. My number nine clip has Mike Staff, uh, you know, from Mike Staff Productions. In fact, if you're planning a wedding, check, check out Mike Staff. Here's Mike Staff explaining how radio changed in the 1990s with the emergence of grunge. Yeah, music changed in the 90s because, um, you know, as soon as Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, the world, the rock world at least, was a completely different place. Like, you know, the 80s was hanging on by a dear thread when it comes to the music. It was bands like Trickster and Britney Fox, and, you know, they were just kind of hanger-on wannabes from the cool lady stuff that Van Halen kind of brought into the culture. But when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, it was like the glam was gone and it became a little bit more serious but the music was so unique it was just so different and then with that came the whole alternative music format which was really interesting because you had a lot of hard rockin grunge bands nirvana Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, bands like that that were clearly hard rock but then the alternative rock scene brought in some 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 bands that were not quite that heavy and hard. You had bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers who had some clear rock songs, but they also had stuff that didn't really fit on pop, like you couldn't really define it. R.E.M. was one of those bands. Um, I mean, there's just a ton of those 80s kind of alternative bands that trying to figure out where they fit. So a whole new format came on, alternative rock. And then what happened with alternative rock is that it was an alternative after a couple of decades. It wasn't so different. It was so mainstream. At number eight, here's WLLZ rock jock Doug Podell, Doc Rock, as he talks about the changes that have occurred in uh, in the role that radio plays in promoting concerts for these rock bands. Check this out. Yes, there is your guy who goes on the phone and just buys his tickets, but there's a lot of people who still need that information from radio, that hear that from their radio station and it entices them to buy tickets. Just ask Live Nation that. Live Nation wouldn't be as successful as they are today with just social media. You know, radio has a big part of that. Now back in the old days when Metallica would do a pop-up concert in Chicago, they'd come to the top rock station and they'd announce it and it would sell out in an hour. Now they do it on their Facebook page. So there is that, but we're right there. We're following all of that social media. Social media has become a big part of radio. Had radio not incorporated social media, had it had it head stuck up its butt, and you know, and, which we did for a long time, uh, not incorporated into your programming or just your thought process every day, we would be we would not be very relevant. At number seven, Greg Henson. You know him from WDFN, the fan, remember him? Uh, I think he's in Grand Rapids now. Greg Henson talks about the specialty records that were released in the 1970s. I remember these. 
Here's Greg. Check this out. And I listened to a lot of country music. Ray Stevens, you know, he had all those parody songs that were huge hits. But if you remember in the 70s, do you remember all these records that would come out? And it was like interviews. I remember interviewing Jaws. And they would use songs of the time, like, like Jaws, uh, some, some, if I see you on the street, what will you do to me? And, it, and, it would, and they'd put in a clip of the Eagles, Get You Baby One of These Nights. And they were, they were putting these kind of goofy records out. And here's the thing. When I was a kid, I got, I got a buck fifty allowance every week. And every Friday night, we'd go to Kmart at 15 in Livernoy. And I would get a record and a Hot Wheel. And, and I got, my first one I ever got in the 70s was Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell. Then we got uh, You're In My Heart by Rod Stewart. <laughs> I mean, all these, uh, in the 70s, that was my life. Little 45s, sports, and Hot Wheels. And, and so I grew up listening to country music for the most part and watching who uh, Mac Davis, uh, Glenn Campbell. Johnny Cash, they all had their own variety shows. Oh, Donnie and Marie, Tony Orlando and Dawn. All those, all those 70s artists were so iconic because they, were, they tried to make crossovers out of all of them. And they put them on TV, they put them on the radio, and they were superstars. At number six, we have another WDFN alum. Here's Art Regner as he talks about how his infamous rants about the Detroit Lions went over in the Lions locker room. Check this out. And so... Uh, Mark Carrier would always say, well, come to the locker room. And so I would always go into the locker room. See, that's the thing. If you're going to criticize and you don't go into the locker room, then you have no credibility. None. None with me. It's easy to sit behind and flamethrow behind a microphone, and that's all you are is in that studio. You know, nah, that's not the way the game works. If you're going to say something about a guy, and you're gonna, you, better, you better walk into the room and let them face you. And so I can remember there were times when I would go into the Lions room where their PR staff would announce me. Say, here he is, here's DFN, here's the, the crazy one, here's Art Regner. And I cannot tell you how many times, how many times um, Lion players came up to me and would say, you know, when we play at home, we can't get out, out, of our, out to our cars fast enough to hear you going off. And... I don't know if I want to beat the crap out of you or if I want to hug you, but I am laughing. It's so funny. But, but it was true. You know, none of it was, it was all spontaneous. It was all raw emotion. You know, it just like poured out of me. And, uh, you know, so they never, ever pulled our credentials. Here at number five is the late John O'Leary as he discusses the limited restrictions at WABX for selecting the music they played. Uh, on that radio station. Check this out. It was pretty wide open as to what we played. Now, when I got to ABX, that was similar, a card file. There were three or four different categories. But the big thing at ABX was this book. We had this huge book with uh, thousands of pages in it with the numbers with a song title, the album it's on. And there was, I think, a number on every album, like B7 or whatever, which which would give you, you know, you'd run over and hope that the jock had put it in the right slot, in the right place on the wall. We had a wall full of albums. Um, and you would, we all had a grease pencil with a different color on it. So I was blue. So a three-day separation, a three-day separation. I mean, that's unheard of nowadays because they only play 400 songs, so obviously that doesn't work. Uh, 
a three-day separation was the, the minimum before you would play an oldie again. And we're talking about thousands of songs, a page, say, of the band, okay, with two or three pages of band music on it, all different cuts, deep cuts, uh, stuff people might know, stuff people did know. We had the option to pick whatever we wanted with a three-day separation, and we cheated on that, too, if we felt like it. At number four, here's another radio legend, Paul W. Smith, talking about when he got fired from CKLW because he wasn't Canadian. Check this out. Because of this battle across the border, and they had to announce that they were really a Canadian station, and then we had to play Canadian content music. So after so much Anne Murray and Gordon Lightfoot, you start to run low. <laughs> I mean, no disrespect. I'm just saying being pigeonholed into playing just Canadian content music was not good. So they tried to switch over to talk after having been a music station, the Big Eight, and, and all that. So it was a tough time. And uh, we were sold to another Canadian company. I think it was a beer company, but I can't remember. And when I came in one morning, they said, oh, there's a big meeting today. And they said, we're worried we're all going to get fired. And I said, no, we're not all going to get fired. They're going to say they bought the station and that everything's going to stay the same. This is radio. This is Radio 101. Well, we go into the meeting and we were all fired that day. All the Americans were fired that day. And number three is one of the favorite interviews I did for, uh, in this whole docuseries. Number three, Mr. Duke Fracour from The Four Tops talking about how important the Funk Brothers and Motown was to the radio in the 60s and 70s. Check it out. Motown went to, went to radio. It, it started having more people listen to, uh, I'd say, black music than a, a lot of other companies. Uh, they, they started out and they started going across the board. As soon as they started making those hits, people across the world and across the board liked Motown. It, it, it wasn't just black music. It wasn't just white music or pop music. It was music based on with the lyrics and, and the, the beat and the way the music was formed, it appealed to everybody pretty much. The Funk Brothers was not just important to all the guys, they were so important to the whole Motown feeling and sound. They were, a lot of people don't understand how important they really were, or maybe they do now, to, to the Motown sound. They, they were originally were jazz players which means they could be very flexible with notes and music and all. Uh, when they got to Motown, they had to learn, just like we had, we had to learn how to record in the way that Motown wanted them to. And they got so good at it. Once the producer was happy with their recording, they would always say, look, we're gonna take one more. And they would take one more, and that would always be the one. They would add just that little extra something about them. They were artists. The number two outtake that didn't make the docuseries is from the National Radio Hall of Fame, Dick Purton, as he talks about one of his favorite accomplishments in radio. Before he even came to Detroit, Dick Purton was responsible for bringing the Beatles to Cincinnati back in 64. He was being interviewed one night by a station from Indianapolis. And I had dinner with the program director, and he was trying to get me to, to move from Cincinnati to Indianapolis. This is before I ever got here in Detroit. And uh, he happened to say to me, uh, who's got the Beatles for Cincinnati? And this is 1964. And I said, I don't know. And uh, he said, uh, well, we had them for Indianapolis. We've got them for Indianapolis. And I said, you do? 
I said, how'd you do that? He said, very simple. Just called their agent in New York and uh, talked to him, discussed it, picked a date, time, et cetera, et cetera. He said, you might be able to do the same thing. So the next morning, after I got off the Air 10, because I did mornings at WSAI in Cincinnati, so I called, I found out their, their agency, William Morris or whatever the agency was, and I called up and I introduced myself and I said, we're interested in uh, sponsoring the Beatles when the, on the tour, the, the first tour, the 1964 tour. So I got to, um, the bottom line is, uh, all it required was a venue, a date, um, money. Of course, the money was, uh, we, I had to come up with $12,500, and a cashier's check, and then another twelve five the night of the concert. And at number one, this is likely my favorite outtake that didn't make this series. Here's another National Radio Hall of Famer, Mr. Fred Jacobs, telling a great Arthur P. story. Uh, from when Fred was the uh, the PD at WRAF in Detroit. Check this out. I mean, I remember the first time Stevie Ray Vaughan's Pride and Joy ended up on my desk. And I took one listen to that song and I just said, holy crap, this is so great. And Arthur was on the air and I walked it down to him and I said, you are going to, this is an Art Penhallow song, you are going to love this. I want you to play it next. And he said, okay, great, absolutely. Arthur did a real nice setup, played Pride and Joy. The song ends, there's a bit of a pause, the mic opens, and Art goes, that was so good, I'm gonna play it again. Picked up the tone arm and put it back down on the record and played Pride and Joy a second time in a row. And I heard people talk about that moment years later. It was one of those spontaneous moments that happen but that people remember so there you have it some of my favorite outtakes from radio days 101 years of radio i hope you enjoyed those uh, i remind you to be on the lookout for radio days 101 years of radio coming very very soon and again if you know someone who can help me out in finding a distributor for this docuseries or you want to help donate to the gofundme page that can be found in the description i would greatly appreciate it if you are unable to for whatever reason my ask is that if you're watching this, that you share it with as many people as you can within your sphere of influence. Thank you, thank you, thank you in advance. And thank you for checking out this episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Today's show was brought to you by Team 71 Mortgage Group. Are you looking to buy or refinance your home and have questions that need answers now? Pick up the phone, call Brian Alord, 810-444-6466. That's 810-444-6466. Tell him Ron sent you. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography headshots, maybe you need drone video, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. You can also hear previous episodes of Radio Days, the streamcast there as well. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the upcoming documentary about the history of radio, as we talked about today, go check out Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio. Click that link under the Documentaries tab at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Thanks for checking out the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. You can't go. All the plants are going to die.